listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Good afternoon, Toronto. It's Adrian Boucher from the Toronto Sun in for Alan Carter. Thank you very much for spending some of your afternoon with us. Well, the big story in this city and the country remains our amazing Toronto Raptors. Big win last night over the Golden State Warriors. The Raptors leading the series 2-1, to one, and we go play one more game in enemy territory, so to speak, and then it's back home to Toronto for Game 5. But putting this all into context and give us some perspective about the excitement on the ground and, and in the Oracle Arena, I'm joined by Alan Carter, of course, of the show here. Welcome back to your show, Alan Carter. <laughs> I'm glad you haven't destroyed my show. No, I, I, I'm only, there's show. nothing but improvement. You're going to come back and you're going to wonder, how how did it get so good? And also no, joining me good. is the Toronto Sun's Ryan Wolstad, who of course is one of our uh, basketball writers covering the NBA for us. So the both of you joining me is um, great perspective because you're going to come at this from different, different angles. So Ryan, let me start with you. Um, big win last night, even though Steph Curry put on an absolute show, 47 points, not good enough um for the golden state warriors and our raptors successful so key to success last night well there were a few i mean one of the keys was was out of the raptors control was the fact that so many of the warriors best players were not playing that that certainly helped a lot they put all the pressure on steph curry which is kind of funny because for a few years there it was uh when when lebron james in cleveland when they were all banged up it was kind of lebron james trying to do it all himself against the Warriors, so the roles were reversed there. But I just thought the Raptors came out with a really good game plan of just they were going to fire up a ton of threes, and just they just felt like they were due for them to actually go in because they, they're a pretty good shooting team all year, and they just had missed a lot of shots. So that was smart. I think it was really good coaching to attack DeMarcus Cousins on, on defense because he can't sort of react quickly or move quickly enough. He's just coming back from an injury himself. So all those things sort of helped. And then just um, all continuing to take it, to the Warriors whenever they, they press, whenever they got close, because the Oracle Arena is, is kind of a madhouse. It's, it's even louder than, than Scotiabank mm-hmm. because it's so old and the fans are, are so close to, to the action. It's very loud, and every time the Warriors threatened, it went a little crazy, and the, the, the Raptors just did a great job of always responding whenever it got too close. Alan, uh, you were you're there. You're you're uh, to Ryan's point about sort of the sound and just how loud it, it really is. Put that into perspective for us. Like what's going on on the what's happening on the ground? Yeah, it is. Um, you know, you always hear about this stadium and the noise and and the the way the fans are here, and it is something to experience. It is considerably louder than Scotiabank, and part of the reason is this is the oldest stadium in the NBA, and it's got this. It's got this crazy, you know, uh, concrete roof that sort of slopes down, and it sort of just reverberates and echoes all the cheering. And it, even the nosebleeds at Oracle are not that far away from the court. And so every time that the Warriors made a push, a couple times they got it within five or seven, and they would come down the court, and the crowd would go in just crazy, and it felt like the roof was about to lift off the place. It is considerably louder, but in a kind of a different way than ACC. It's this sort of echo effect in Oracle that makes it so much louder. Well, and we even have um, some audio from Danny Green, who's sort of weighing in on, you know, uh, the but the strength of our fans um, and just wanting to wanting to make them very proud. Here's Danny Green. Raptors fans are crazy, man. They're all over the place and they come from all over the place to make 
the games, to watch the games, to support us. And we know how big of a stage and how big of an accomplishment it is. It's just us getting here. But we know the job's not done, and we want to continue to make them proud and hopefully you know, give them their first title. So, of course, uh, Ryan, this is an extraordinary time for Raptors fans, basketball fans all across Canada, because they now are North America's team, um, not just not just Toronto's team. But uh, this is uh, this is one of those sorts of interesting situations because Danny Green, there's some criticism against him in the in the earlier um, games in the playoffs that he didn't quite find his game. And but last night, I mean, how it was six three pointers from him. Yeah, he's a guy that that's done, he's been there before. He's one of the, the two Raptors who had been in the finals, along with Kawhi Leonard, winning one one championship and losing another in heartbreaking fashion. And he, the year they lost, he he shot I think fifty eight percent or something from three, one of the best marks ever. And he's got one of the best three point shooting percentages in the finals. So he's pretty good at just throwing out whatever uh, whatever was going wrong in previous rounds. Once the finals come around. He just seems to uh, light up and get it going. So, I mean, he was really impressive. And kind of the same thing happened with Fred Van Vliet. He was so uh, bad earlier in the playoffs against Orlando and Philly. And then as soon as Milwaukee shows up, he he can't miss. And he's continuing that. He's playing really good defense on Steph Curry. So it's kind of funny that that how how streaky they are. From one series to the next, they'll go from missing everything to hitting everything. Uh, Alan, the the reporting was that the uh, Golden State Warriors fans were, you know, just trickling out of the stadium, you know, when they knew that the game was uh, not not going to be successful for GSW, um, you know, long, long faces, or they still, uh, they still know that they have a, a winning uh, franchise on their hands. So how, what's the sense? Yeah, I don't think there's any panic in warrior land. I mean, you know, this is a club with a winning tradition. And, you know, when you see a guy like Steph Curry throw up that many points, mm-hmm. You know, and and knowing full well that Durant, you know, is probably coming back, and Clay Thompson is probably coming back. That, you know, this is the team that we beat last night is not going to necessarily be the same team that we have to face on Friday or on Monday. And that's and that's a very uh, important point. Like, so Ryan, going into the game tomorrow, game four. Uh, the Warriors are going to be ready. Um, what do we know about their about the? Because uh, I, I mean, the notion is, oh well, go, Toronto's going to win because Golden State's best. Some of their best players are are injured, and so you know, it's like you, you know, they're they're the better ability for them to win. But um, I don't know. Toronto's team is look, just looking really, really good. But what's your sense about uh, Durant, for example, coming back? Yeah, he's getting close, but it's it's going to be really interesting. I mean, they said. They've all but said Clay Thompson's going to return for, for the next game. And I think they're almost at a point where they really, really need Durant. But this is also, like uh, like we were saying, they're a very confident team. They won before. They're not panicking at all. You know, a lot of teams would have forced Clay, or they would have let Clay wanted to play. They would have let him play last night. But the Warriors are just like, you know what, they know how good they are, and they're not going to push anyone. So if, if there's a chance that Durant if something's going to happen to him and he'll be done for the series, they're not going to push him. But yeah, I, w- I would expect them to at least for game five, if not for game four. But to me, it is funny how they just, they don't seem that worried. And then like, like we were saying about the fans, they don't seem worried at all either because they've, you know, they're just so used to winning. So it is pretty interesting, but I will say one other thing that there was a ton of Raptor fans there and they were very loud. And I don't mm-hmm. think the Warriors fans were, were too happy with them at the end of the game when they were singing, Oh Canada and yelling and screaming. So, so that was interesting. 
So there was a bit of a kerfuffle last night, um, Alan. Mikhail Lowry uh, was getting pushed by a fan. Here's his uh, take on that. Fans like that, they shouldn't be allowed to be in there because, you know, it's not right. I can't do nothing to protect myself. Um, But, you know, the league does a good job, and, you know, hopefully they ban them from all NBA games ever. Any sort of follow-up on that, uh, Alan? Was there, um, you know, obviously you never want to see one of the players getting pushed by a fan or or anything like that, but uh, what was that all about? Yeah, well, we have some developing news on that. Um, it's just has just come in now in the last little bit that they have now identified this player. This is a scoop from Axios who say that the, the sorry, not the player, but the fan who was ejected is Mark Stevens, and Mark Stevens is a venture capitalist and part owner of the Warriors. Oh boy, part owner of the Warriors, and now we're being told by ESPN, or at least that they're reporting. Uh, well, pardon me, it is uh, the league is now saying, it's not ESPN, but the league is saying that they're going to investigate. So, you know, it, it, this is not just a fan who happened to be sitting courtside. And if you look at the shot, yeah, you can see what happens. He leans over and he shoves Lowry. He leans over two seats and shoves Lowry. And according to what Lowry said last night, he also said something really offensive to him. Um, now, Lowry didn't say what it was, but... That is going to all of that is going to be part of the investigation. And you hear Lowry saying, like, that guy should never be able to go to an NBA game. And he's part owner of the Warriors. Well, that is absolutely fascinating. And I'm sure we'll see how this develops, because that's a pretty crappy thing to do, frankly. And uh, just by virtue of the fact that he's an owner makes it even that worse. Well, I want to thank both of you for joining me. Um, Global News' is Ellen Carter, of course, the namesake of this show. And I get the pleasure of hosting for the next couple of days. And the Toronto Sun's Ryan Wolstead. Thanks to both of you. really good news for uh, our public sector workers because we are protecting jobs uh, today. That was the voice of Treasury Minister for the province of Ontario, Peter Bethlen-Falvey, on the announcement, big announcement by the Ford government, that they are going to be capping public sector wage and benefit hikes at 1% annually for three years. Some are saying that this is going to be a massive battle on the hands of the Ford government. But putting this into perspective, this is a far more measured response than what we even saw from the McGuinty government in previous years and even the Bob Ray government under the NDP back in the day. Remember remember that and very brief NDP government? They put further restrictions and more rigorous restrictions on the public sector. So by, by most measures, it would appear to me that this is a, a pretty reasonable thing. Let's hear now from the Ontario Public Sector Employers Union, President Smokey Thomas, and he has some choice words for this move. Well, he's already declared war on working people and organized labor, so really what he's doing is just opening up another front in that war. All right, so there's both sides of the debate. Uh, To put this into perspective for me, I'm joined by Michael Diamond, who is the former campaign manager for when Doug Ford ran for leader of the PC party and is now a principal at Upstream Strategy and is a regular commentator here at uh, 640 Toronto. Michael, thank you very much for joining me. 
Thanks for having me. This is um, just as I said, I was saying before, you know, just in terms of looking at some semblance of fiscal restraint, this province has double digit a deficit, 13 billion, 15 billion. Um, that's what we're hovering around. I know it's, it's been reduced a little bit in the last budget, but this is, by my estimation, pretty measured approach because the other the, the average rate of inflation in increase in salaries was 1.66% last year for example so isn't it reasonable for the government to be moving forward on this it's highly reasonable, and uh, this, is, this is a good and important plan. Now, would it be a better situation if there wasn't such a huge and massive deficit uh, and a reliance on debt that after 15 years of waste and, frankly, incompetence uh, has uh, crippled Ontario? Of course, that would be a better situation. But uh, hoping and wishing is not the same as reality, and the Premier and the new government had to uh, make some decisions here. And uh, this one is a very reasonable and modest approach. They could have... Uh, they they could have gone further. You know, Bob Ray, when he was premier, instituted uh, Ray days, and as you were talking about, and, uh, members of the public service being forced to take days off. None of this is here, you, you know, and uh, this is a measured approach that will, will protect taxpayers, but also protect uh, members of the Ontario public service. So this is going to apply to approximately one million union and non-union employees paid by the provincial government who work for the Ontario Civil Service, the Ontario Provincial Police, school boards, universities, colleges, hospitals hospitals, long-term care facilities. It does not apply to public sector workers employed by municipalities such as inside and outside workers, police and firefighters. The The expectation, Michael, is that the province is anticipating to save approximately $500 million, but there is going to be a political battle on, on the Ford government's hands. But I think the average Ontarian would think that this is a worthwhile fight to have. Well, I think it's, they'll think that it's a worthwhile but a necessary fight. And I think since uh, this is a uh, reasonable uh, solution to a very complex issue that we're seeing the provincial government take, I think that uh, voters will, will realize, and I think the vast majority of members of the Ontario Public Service will realize that this is uh, a, a little bit of medicine to get better and that this is a reasonable approach. So I think, you know, there will be backlash from some of the organized, uh, organized labor, uh, et cetera. Uh, but that was going to happen to this government, even if they went and grew the size of the public service and increased wages for all, they were going to have a fight with Smokey Thomas, because that's Smokey Thomas's job, but it's Doug Ford's job to get our fiscal house back in order. And I think it's important that the facts be presented without all the rhetoric. Uh, this is not going to be something that is retroactive, meaning it's only going to apply to future labor contracts and negotiations. It does not break any existing contracts that are on the table. And the other important part, I think, is that it's not preventing anybody in the public sector from moving up existing salary grids. Uh, One of the things that you always hear is sort of on the hysterical side of it that um, this is tearing up contracts and this is going to be, um, you know, terrible for the average worker, et cetera, et cetera. But I always sort of want to point out to those that are so opposed to something like this. The union folks that you're representing are taxpayers. They are the ones that are having to shoulder the burden and are the kids in the future are the ones that are going to be shouldering the burden for these massive debts and deficits. I, I've never understood that sort of notion that as a union leader, you, your job is to fight for for fair wages, better wages and all of those things. But your members are taxpayers, Michael. 
Well, and it's, you know, you often hear about cases of robbing Peter to pay Paul. This is a case of robbing Paul to pay Paul. So I think you make an excellent point there uh, that, you know, something's got to give the, the same people who, and, and the, the hysteria, I think, another excellent point that you raised, because this isn't going to stop professional development. This isn't going to stop people from, from advancing in their careers. You know, people you're going to hear over the next couple of days, oh, people are going to quit their jobs. People are going to stay in their jobs because these are generally good jobs, and the people who fill them enjoy them, and they're going to be great opportunities for career advancement in a very good and increasingly stable work environment because of the measures the new government has taken. One of the challenges, of course, will be in the courts. It's an inevitability, Michael. The the unions, we already heard their rhetoric over the course of the last day or so since this announcement came out yesterday that they're calling it, quote, unconstitutional. But let's let's go back into history a little bit when when the then prime minister Harper, his government had passed similar legislation at a federal level. It was taken to court and it was upheld by the Supreme Court of Canada. So shouldn't the union just save their members money and work with the government versus wasting their memberships money and and taking them to court? Well, look, I think that, that's a good point that this, uh, they could be a partner in uh, creating the positive reforms. You'll find in companies oftentimes that the people who have the best ideas uh, for savings and efficiencies are those who work in the factory, those who actually understand the operation. And the public service should be no different, and they could certainly come and be a collaborative partner, or they can fight the province and courts where they'll lose, where they'll waste their members' money. And let's remember, this is what it all comes down to, because you'll see unions time and again bash conservative politicians will their members who are taxpayers are voting for conservative politicians one of the great reasons you'll see jerry diaz and did ryan oppose the conservatives and you'll see a riding like oshawa remain conservative even in a bad election like 2015 yeah where were these individuals standing up and, and yelling when when previous governments were just spending unabashedly and getting us into these financial situations and you know it's interesting because whenever we talk about the context of the cuts and reductions it's always um it becomes personal for example, we're not going to be able to pay for student nutrition programs. We're going to be, um, you know, little Janie and Johnny are not going to be able to access this public sector health care or, you know, whatever. There's always hyperbole to make the point. But why isn't it ever made personal when the debts and deficits are running up? You know, all of those people, uh, the the amount of money that we spend to service the, the interest on the debt alone, I think it's now the third biggest spending envelope at the provincial level. You know, where were they when, when all of those bills were being racked up? I mean, it's so much easier to say yes than it is to say no. And frankly, the Ford government was elected to do that. They were elected to get the fiscal house of those problems back in order. And it's one of the big problems is we have a whole generation of folks, uh, myself included, who never actually had to experience the impacts of debt and high interest rates because we're living in a in an era of policy of uh, of artificially reduced uh, interest rates, uh, which which have meant that the consequences that one day will come, and we're seeing that here in Ontario, uh, that they, those consequences will come and they will destroy uh, economies, they will destroy lives, and it, we, we should be thankful that we have a uh, responsible government that's taking a measured approach to fix a very big mess. I would actually even submit to you that by virtue of the fact that it is so measured with uh, the Treasury Minister's announcement yesterday, Peter Bethlen Falvey, the, the Ford government actually does not want to have a fight on their hands with the public sector. 
Because this is no. quite measured. I mean, for some of us, you know, more on the on the fiscal conservative side, we would say, oh, perhaps they're not going far enough. They know that they should be taking a more aggressive approach to it. Um, Premier Ford always likes to say the Toronto Sun says that he's spending too much and the Toronto Star says he's not spending enough. So maybe he's found sort of that sweet spot somewhere in the middle. But by all accounts, it seems very reasonable. And, and this government doesn't want to fight with the public sector unions, but they'll still be out there this summer on the lawn of the legislature protesting. Well, and that's just it, because this government was seeking a fight. They'd still get the, they'd get a fight from, uh, from the uh, union uh, leadership, because it's not the union members, let's be very clear. It's a union leadership. It's those paid organizers who their only job is taking union member money, folks who work hard to provide for their families, taking their money to be full-time activists. And it's going to be those activists who are going to create a thing. But they were going to do that anyway, because that's their job, and some of them are very good at it, and I find them obnoxious and annoying, but that doesn't take away from the fact that they can be effective. But if the province was actually seeking a fight, they'd have that fight. But in the eyes of the regular folks in the public, that would then become, you know, it would be an issue of maybe the province uh, stepped too far here. But in this case, I think that we'll just uh, look, the province is being measured, the province is being reasonable and responsible, and we have these professional protester, professional activist class who are opposing them for the sake of opposing them. Give me a break. Well, we are going to give you a break. So thank you very much for joining me. (laughs) Michael Diamond is a principal at Upstream Strategies, and of course, a regular contributor here at Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Five years ago, nearly 14,000 Canadian assault troops fought in the battle that started the liberation of Europe from the grips of fascism. Thousands upon thousands of Canadian soldiers left from Halifax, Nova Scotia, on a long journey across the ocean to go liberate the Nazi-occupied France with our allied forces Many of those men lost their lives. Today, we mark the 75th anniversary of that extraordinary journey. The opportunity to have seen Juno Beach, it's it's second to none. Um, The history, the meaning, and it means so, so very much. Today, of course, is we mark D-Day. Now, here's something interesting about D-Day. People often uh, wonder what the the D stands for. It actually doesn't stand for anything. It just simply stands for day. And there are ceremonies happening all across the world, all across Canada. Um, And we have our our very own David Aiken, the National Chief Political Correspondent for Global, is there and joins us now. And how are you doing, David? No, it's great to be here, Adrian. No problem. A special day. I mean, uh, I know you know because you're a vet, too. And this is an important day for folks who served and for those who want to honor those who serve. And nobody served. Well, I'm not saying nobody, but we all know the the courage, the extra courage it took to get off those boats 75 years ago in stormy seas. Um, Not sure what to face and to have, uh, you know, all of Nazi Germany pretty much firing away at you Um, today. (laughs) 
today it's beautiful, sunny. The, the ocean is calm as a baby. I'm, I'm looking at it right now. Uh, it's beautiful, sunny weather and, uh, and warm temperatures, which was great because a lot of the vets who came ashore 75 years ago are here today. You know they're still they're in their 90s now, mm-hmm. and, uh, and so I'm glad it was a very comfortable day for them uh, to be here, to be honored. Um, you know, obviously they're they're the heroes of of the hour. This talk to us a little bit about the setting, walking around, knowing the history. A lot of Canadians actually don't talk about this very much. I mean, it is mm-hmm. the 75th anniversary, but the this gravitas of being there, walking on on those in those fields, David. It is, it's it's good, must be overwhelming knowing men, young men. And women, you know, mostly men, very young age, 18, 19, 20-year-old men. Oh, 16. The and young, six, the vet buried in the cemetery. 16, near, 16 years old. Just babies. And they went yeah. and fought and died for the freedom that you and I have the luxury of now enjoying speaking on radio and, and, and oh, you yeah. know, and a free press and all of these things. I mean, that is, um, you know, the legacy and the, and the history of that. And it was an all-volunteer army, and you know that's the other incredible thing. We would introduce conscription right towards the end of the Second World War, but at this point in time, all these guys who came ashore, 14,500 of them, all of them volunteers. And Adrian, you get goosebumps. Uh, even if there wasn't a ceremony, you'd get goosebumps walking around the dunes. And if you've ever traveled to Canada's Atlantic coast, well, you know, the Atlantic coast on this side of the pond looks very similar flat beach into a rolling dune with some vegetation at the top of it, and particularly today, it looks lovely. It looks like a great vacation spot like you'd see in PEI or Nova Scotia. But as you walk among the dunes, here particularly around Juno Beach, great interpretive center. There's plaques, there's uh, places for you to see. The German positions, many of them still preserved. You know, you can sit there and see the pillboxes where the machine guns were placed and mow these guys down. And then um, just uh, not very long ago, only back, I think, in 2013, the Juno Beach uh, uh, basically museum, it's called the Juno Beach Center, was established here right beside the French town of Courcelles-sur-Mer. And it's a wonderful facility. It's just great. So, uh, yeah, absolute goosebumps. If you ever have the chance to visit, take your kids, show them around. I would compare it to, in terms of just, like, feeling that big, huge ball in my gut. Um, I was on Vimy Ridge for a couple of the, the ceremonies there to get the big World War One victory of the Canadians. And I think same imports, real coming-of-age battles for Canada, and battles in which, you know, maybe our allies didn't think that the Canadians could really cut it. And the Canadians sure as hell did, both at Vimy and here. As many people may know, the Americans were a couple of beaches over at Omaha and Utah. The Brits were at Sword and at at Gold. And at the end of day one, the Canadians had made it farther in than any other other group against some very stiff, uh, very stiff um, uh, competition. There is... um story after story after story that I'm sure you're hearing from the veterans that are there that um, luckily are still with us to sort of share the reality of what happened on the uh, on that day 75 years ago and it does sort of bring tears to your eyes because would they have ever thought the allies that we had but even at the time the uh, our world enemies today everybody is standing there in commemoration the Germans, yeah, the it, Japanese. I mean, everybody is standing there together now. Right, and so that it's really interesting to reflect on because, of course, one of the reasons 
that we have these ceremonies is obviously to remember and reflect on the sacrifices gone by, but also, you know, it's impossible not to think about our world today and how, what an example of the West's great powers 75 years ago coming together to solve the world's problems. And we think of the world's problems today, and certainly here in Europe, there's less of a feeling of European unity among the, the you know, the free, the free countries, Britain right now in terrible turmoil, um, and trying to pull away from Europe. And, and just as an aside, I, I'm sure you, like me, Adrian, were big fans of Queen Elizabeth II, mm-hmm. among many reasons, her longevity and all that she's contributed to. And of course, her first prime minister was probably the most consequential prime minister in modern British history, that being Winston Churchill. And she is just about to lose probably the most inconsequential prime minister, that being Port Theresa May, who quits her job on Friday uh, and leaves British Britain diminished. So you think about leadership um, then and now and contrast that. And of course, Elizabeth II is part of the greatest generation. She was training to be an army driver mechanic as the war ended. And it's sort of hard not to think about that. And then here's another thing, too, in sort of modern history. uh, Germany now, of course, long reconciled with the West over this war, is now one of the stability, is, is one of the sort of more stable European democracies that believes in it, in the strength of a united Europe. And France is sort of stepping up, too, under uh, Emmanuel Macron's presidency. He, too, is fighting uh, against some of the nationalist forces that want to pull Europe apart um, to try to preserve Europe. Trudeau, our prime minister, of course, very much in line with the vision that Macron and Merkel uh, have. Um, and that is, a, that is a, you know this, this is an absolute uh, current debate going on in Britain, in Hungary, in Poland. How close should Europe be? In 1945, there was <laughs> the free peoples of Europe were pretty much united in fighting off tyranny. David Aiken, you have the pleasure of doing some pretty extraordinary things in, in the role in which you serve, but this one must be very special, and uh, I really appreciate you joining me. Thank you very much. Happy to, Adrian. Have a great afternoon. Thank you. That is Global National's Chief Political Correspondent, David Aiken. Putting this into perspective, could you imagine what that must have been like seeing those boats coming upon the beach? Well, a very young 15-year-old woman, and she was 15 at the time, so she'd be close to 90 now, Therese Le Chevalier. Here is her accounting of what it was like seeing the beaches of Normandy being stormed. All of all sorts of boats, black. The sea was black with boats and ships and everything. I could see the the movement, the, the, all the cars, all the tongues. I saw one tongue coming out of the water. That was amazing. The sacrifice done by all those people is absolutely enormous. Very well put. This is an interesting story. I have a nine-year-old son, and the ongoing debate, battle, argument that parents are constantly struggling with, 
is how much screen time should your child be afforded? Well, luckily for us, the Canadian Pediatric Society has just released some what they believe are appropriate guidelines to help guide kids, mostly parents, through this whole debate about how much time a kid should be in front of a screen. I mean, there's lots going on in the kids' world, lots going on in parents' world. I will fully disclose when my son was two, we got him an iPad and we used it for, you know, the educational stuff. We were on a long flight and it entertained him. Sometimes you see the parents in the in the grocery store and kid is fussing, parent hands the phone, goes on, plays a game, whatever the case may be. Sometimes we as parents just want to do what we can to make it through the day. However, that's not necessarily the best thing. The Canadian Pediatric Society, their digital health task force, they have come out with some specific guidelines. But to unpack this for us, I'm joined by Julie Romanowski. She's an early childhood consultant and the owner of Misbehavior Parenting, Coaching and Consultant Services. Thank you very much for joining me, Julie. Thanks for having me, Adrian. All right. So can you break down what this is suggesting for us? Um, just starting with, at the very young age, kids under two, uh, according to this study, no screen time at all. Yep, absolutely none. And I know that's going to send shockwaves across <laughs> the world. So just take a breath. <laughs> But yeah, it is, there is no benefit. So a lot of parents will say, but it's educational. There's no benefit. In fact, there's, it's doing more harm than good. So it isn't necessary. And then it goes up to roughly about half hour to 45 minutes for uh, two to five. And then from five to all the way up to teens, just short of two hours, which in my opinion actually is still a lot. And again, the shockwaves, I understand. (laughs) But what it's doing is it's taking over. So that would be no different than telling an alcoholic who drinks a whole bottle every day, hey, you can only have a shot or two. It's, it's, yes, there's guidelines, and I'm grateful for that, but it is still much bigger than just throwing down guidelines. I I think, I mean, the notion always has been, though, you cannot put a screen in front of a child to report place parenting um but you and i both know myself in particular i talked to my friends about this like my son is of a certain age he does go outside and he plays he's athletic he he does exercise he does all those things but then they get home and they play this game called Fortnite. and you know if they have a fear of missing out if their friends are on and managing all of that is not i think just the parents role it's also in our education system this is all a big challenge. I appreciate the guidelines. I appreciate that they, they put mm-hmm. these things forward for us contextually, but how realistic is it? It's not. I think, I think that's just what's going to happen. There's going to be shock, and then it's like, yeah, but that's not reality. I think it's important that we have those guidelines so that we know, but it's, it's no different than take, eating fast food every day. We know, but we're still in the drive through And so it's one aspect I think there's a couple of other layers going on here. One being parents who are way too busy, stressed out, and focused on so many other things and responsibilities that it is hard to do more one-on-one and not put the screen in front of the child no matter what the age is. So as a, a way to get your kid out of your face, yes, of course that works. It's perfect. It's quiet. It's clean. It's out of your face. It doesn't get much better than that. And I understand the burden of parents. Uh, Me as well, as a single mother, I get it. 
I'm in the trenches. I, I totally understand. But we can't, we can't rely on it. And that's what the issue is because there are no other alternatives. And so we have to look at what we're really trying to teach in terms of our children growing up in developing skills around being bored, around being, well, there's no one to play with. Uh, my mom or dad are, are busy, and my friends, I can't walk to their homes, and no one can drive me. We have to look at that part of life. And unless we're in organized sports or online, there's not much else for this uh, generation of kids to do. So that's actually part of the issue as well. In the very few short seconds we have left, the uh, Ontario government is looking at um, passing legislation to, to basically ban, well, to ban yeah. cell phones from schools. Is that the right move? Yeah. I like it. I like it because unless we're doing something, remember, cell phones didn't come with any kind of guidelines or boundaries. Now it's an issue. We got to do something a bit hard and fast up front here to get it back into a more controlled type of area because it is just out of control. Banning cell phones in classrooms, 100%. Can you use it on your lunch break before and after school? Yes, in case of emergency. But, you know, get them out. It isn't necessary. Absolutely not. Julie, thank you very much for joining me. Yeah, thank you very much. Hope we can chat again. You bet. Julie Romanowski is an early childhood consultant and the owner of Misbehavior. All right, parents, for those of you that are listening, good luck having that battle with your kid about restricting um, their screen time. It's, it's a challenge. We all face it, even for the grandparents. Sometimes, you know, they go visit grandma and grandpa and it's like, oh, it's iPad time because it's like a treat. I'm Adrienne Batcher from the Toronto Sun in for Alan Carter this week. A big thank you to Rebecca and Courtney for putting this all together. We'll do it again tomorrow.